0: Okay. Are we there? Awesome. We're here. So we can come back now, just to let you see. I actually do record on here, so once I have the microphone on. So a couple things I do when I'm recording: <clears throat> if you ask a question, I'll tend to repeat it. But isn't that I'm going crazy? I repeat it because if you're listening to the podcast, you won't hear the question. So I tend to repeat the question so that if you're listening on the podcast later, you know what the question was. So when I give the answer. Or whatever we work we do with that question, you'll know what's there. So I'm not sure yet where this is going to go. I will give you further heads up. As I said, iTunes, I believe there's a guy who's a little more techie than I am. He and I are getting together this week to figure out where to store these. Once I know where I'm storing them, then I'll let you know and you'll be able to access them whenever you want. And you'll be going to bed with me, uh, driving around town with me, wherever it is, you'll be listening to me. Students seem to like this. It's this probably one of the biggest things I've ever done from a – education point of view where students are able to, uh, to uh, access information whenever they can. So, they like it. Alright, so now we get formal. So, now it's, it's learning time. Okay? So, I want you to take a moment. I want you to pair up with somebody, if you can, if possible, and come together with a definition of what you think anatomy is. What is anatomy? Go ahead. Just come up with a brief one-sentence definition. Guys are quiet. What's going on? Talk. (laughs) So do flowers. Flowers have anatomy too yeah <laughs> okay. What'd you come up with? What's anatomy? Okay, anything else? Anybody want to add anything else to that? What do we mean by structure? Internal. Not quite workings. You could say internal, though. Okay. But okay. what could be? So what does structure mean? What structure? What's components? Of what? So how how large can things be? To say anatomy, and how small can things be to say anatomy? Sure. Correct. Absolutely. So, whoops. So we can say that it is structure. Uh, everything from things that we find inside a cell to us as an organism as large as we are and parts of us, can we say anatomy? So, oh, <coughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to hear this damn cold. So, I'm going to write something down I want you to forever remember. and write this down structure governs function anybody care to guess what that means yes say it loud very good The way it's built determines how it works, which is absolutely correct. When we look at the human body, there's no waste. So whether it's the shape of a humerus or the phalange bone of a finger or the stomach, the way it sits in the abdomen, or the layers of structures, all determines what that function is, what that structure can and cannot do. So what happens when we alter structure? What can happen? doesn't work as well would you believe me if I told you cancer doesn't kill you no it's actually not no why doesn't cancer kill you something else happens that kills you well it changes it so if you have stomach cancer cancer makes such an alteration to the stomach the stomach can't function as a stomach any longer so therefore it ends up causing issues Brain cancer changes the brain, doesn't function as a brain anymore. You lose the normal functions of it. We're going to be talking about something called homeostasis probably next week, which is the balance of how thing processes of the body. And understand that, that whenever you change any kind of structure, you end up changing function. What happens when we change function? Does that affect structure? Give me an example if you think that's correct. Can changing function alter structure? Say it. Okay. So let's say I put you in a wheelchair. Would that change structure in your body? It it, it might. Does everybody know who Chris Hatfield is? Okay, does he suffer from anything? Yeah, but does he suffer from anything? You may not know this. Chris actually suffers from severe osteoporosis. Terrible osteoporosis on his pelvis and his hips. Why? Lack of gravity. The fact that he lived in space for so long changed his structure. Made his bones weaker so his function is diminished. So this can go either or. Structure governs function and function can govern structure. Ladies, what happens to your heels when you walk around all summer in a pair of sandals? What happens? What is it you buy all those expensive creams and emery boards for? calluses, maybe you guys don't do that here, okay, usually sandals, you get the thick skin on the feet, again, what you're doing to the body alters the structure, so I want you to remember that, that so that when you're taught anything in this program, shape of bones, placement of ligaments, shape of muscles, it is that structure that governs what that muscle, that bone, that ligament can or cannot do nothing's wasted in the body everything is for a purpose and a reason if we go to alter things if you're having surgical alteration like a like an orthopedic procedure for a broken bone or bone spurs on heels or whatever what the surgeon is attempting to do is to try to make the structure back to normal so that it functions normally next question I want to ask you ask in your groups or your pairs is what is physiology going to give you guys a hint. You don't have to write everything. You guys ever have a teacher did one of those things where they'd start talking BS and gobbledygook while you were all writing because you weren't paying attention to them and he, he or she just started talking about crap. Orange is the new black, black is the new orange and purple is this and that and you just keep writing and you don't even realize what he's saying. So one of the lessons I'll give you is that don't don't necessarily write everything. Um If you answer the question in your writing, you don't have to ask the question in the writing as well. And I do put all these slides up. So I promise you, I always put the slides up ahead of time, so my PowerPoint slides will always be up. Okay? So what's physiology then? If anatomy is structure, what's physiology? Function, processes. So things such as the Krebs cycle. All right? What's the Krebs cycle do? What's it responsible for? If anybody gets the answer really right, what is the Krebs cycle responsible for? Nope. Come on. It makes the products that will result in the production of ATP in the electron transport chain. Wow, you remember now, don't you? What's this? PMAT. Remember, everybody remember PMAT from high school? Prophase, anaphase. Telephase, metaphase, remember all that stuff. So cellular division, so we see that also from a physiological point of view, we as well have physiology that's the endocrine system, which is hormones, reproductive, immune, urinary, integumentary. All the things that we're made of all have physiological processes that are all cellular things that are happening, chemical things that are happening all the time. We are a very dynamic thing. Although you may be sitting there twiddling thumbs, doing nothing, you are doing nothing. You, everything's working in your body now. Things are happening you're unaware of. Um, nonstop, never stops. So when we look at the body then, um, I'm going to break it down into what's called levels of organization to give you a sense of sort of what we're hitting as we work our way through. So the first level is called chemicals. So these are molecules, macromolecules, atoms, subatomic particles, quarks, all sorts of things. We're not going to spend any time on this. I used to teach this many years ago in anatomy. So that would be, does everybody remember what valences are? Electrons, protons, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, So that's sort of how atoms and molecules come together. But I don't spend a whole lot of time on that. I do spend time on the next one, which is the cellular level. So the cellular level is where chemicals come together to form distinct cells. So that could be things such as muscle cells. Ovum, which is the egg cell. Uh, These are oligodendrocytes, sperm, neurons, epithelial tissue, so forth. So all these chemicals come together to make cells and the cell components. What's unique about a cell? It is the smallest level of what? What do cells do? Do cells do what you do? Do they reproduce? Do they excrete? Do they eat? Do they drink? Do they reproduce? Yes. They're a small version of us, right? They do everything we do. So we can say they're the smallest unit of life. So they're said to have life because they do all these things. They excrete, reproduce, and so forth, right? Even, they even respirate, right? Cellular respiration occurs. So they are the smallest unit of life. So all chemicals come together to build all the components that we find in cells, which we'll be, we'll be taking in the next week or so. Cells come together to form tissues right so they come together to form tissues and they make one of four tissues in the human body so you are made up of only these four tissues muscular connective epithelial and nervous so even in light of all that you are standing there before each other you are made up of oh no more than any or all of these four tissues anywhere in your body nothing else so Connective tissue covers bone and blood. Muscle is, is uh, skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, and cardiac muscle. Nervous tissue, it's everywhere. It's the nervous system. Epithelial tissue is your lining tissue. tissue It's the skin on the outside. It's what lines your gut, inside of your mouth, backs of your eyes, and so forth. Adipose tissue is connective tissue. Like you're, you're, either, you're one of these four anywhere in the body or combinations thereof. So chemicals come together to form cells. Cells come together to form tissues. What do tissues come together to form? Organs. So any of these organs we see here, heart, lungs, intestines, and so forth, cells come together in particular ways uh, to form the tissues, and the tissues come together in particular ways to form organs. So a true definition of an organ is having two or more of the four tissues. Okay, so an organ is something that contains two or more of the four tissues. Generally, organs contain all four. So your stomach has epithelial tissue and, and muscular tissue and connective tissue surrounding and nervous tissue that innervates it. So two or more constitutes an organ and the majority of your organs have all four types of tissue. Uh, your glands. Uh, the next step then, the organs come together in particular ways to form organ systems. So we can think of the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, the nervous system, uh, the, the reproductive system, and so forth. So we, we have this amalgamation of organs who start to work together to make these very specific components to our f- overall physiology. We need all of them in order to function properly. And all of them play an important role in maintaining something called homeostasis. They all work together in coordinated effort so that we can be healthy, we can procreate and continue our species. And within that framework, we need to be able to eat, to create energy, to function, and so forth. And all these come together to form what? The organism. Right? So all of them come together to form this female or male component that contains everything from the chemical aspects of small, small micromolecules all the way up to what you see as you. Can we dissolve this all back to chemicals? No, I'm not talking about dying. Could I dissolve these individuals back into chemicals? I mean, if you believe in like uh, science fiction and the ray guns and they melt and they are done, that's in fact what we're doing. Um, if you go back to the valences that I talked about with molecules, Buddha's faith believes that uh, everything just holds together because we believe it does. And Buddha's faith also says that, believe it or not, that floor that you're sitting on, the table that you have that you think is solid, is actually not solid at all. It's actually molecules that are attached together from electron-proton valences, and there's actually spaces between them. But you see them as solid. Same as this, Right. If you you take these all the way down to the smallest little components, you would say there's spaces between them. Uh, What does the digestive system do when you eat meat? Okay, by doing what? It takes solids and dissolves it down into chemicals. Okay, what are you eating when you eat a steak? What are you eating? You're eating cow muscle. It's muscle. I used to teach clinical anatomy. It's one of my favorite courses. I was a butcher by trade for most of my life. So all the meat cuts, I compared to all the muscles that you learn in clinical anatomy. So so psoas is the tenderloin, like filet mignon, uh, the erectors are strip loin steak, uh, all that stuff. I I relate it all together. Because what you're eating is actually cow muscle. And what are you doing? You're actually putting in a digestive process that takes that solid piece of meat. And turns it right down into its most minute chemicals. And what are the major chemicals of muscle? Protein is still a macromolecule. We've got to get smaller than that. Amino acids. acids. Right. So what happens is you have have, uh, essential amino acids and non-essential amino acids. Non-essential amino acids mean that your body produces them. You have 22 essential amino acids, which means, sorry, 11, which means that you have to eat. So your body actually eats cow meat and then takes those amino acids to build your own body and all the components of your own body. And we're going to learn through physiology, protein is everything. Everything's about protein. Everything you do in your body, your immune response, everything is all about protein. So, important life processes then within sort of this hierarchy of, of levels. So, the first is something called metabolism. So, as I suggested, we do have breakdown and build up. So, it's kind of interesting how the cycle works. I take a piece of cow, I kill it, I cut a piece of muscle off, I cook it, I eat it. I break it down into amino acids. Those amino acids that I take from that steak, my body then takes them to build up muscle. Right? It works its way all the way through the cycle. So cow builds muscle, we eat its muscle to build our muscle and other components of our body. When we do that, that is known as anabolism building simple to complex, so muscle hypertrophy. What are steroids called? Anabolic steroids. So what they do is they cause the body to overproduce protein, therefore we look like Arnold. Okay? Or we heal injuries. In fact, I would argue to say that most athletes who take anabolic steroids, most of the time are taking them because they hurt. And they're hurt. And they use them to heal faster. And in a, in a system... And this, this, I find this a real conundrum and a contradiction, is we expect athletes to pay, play 132 baseball games or 72 basketball games and be out there every night and play. And when they get injured, we're expecting them to be out there. So they take steroids, so they heal faster, and then we give them shit and call them cheaters. Between you guys and me, if I'm close to the NHL and some coach says to me, you need to put 10 pounds of muscle and we'll have you on the Toronto Maple Leafs tomorrow, I'd stick a needle in my ass in a minute. Why? Money, man. That's why they do it. It's money. If I could make $10 million a year, I'd really consider it. I truly would, right? Because that's what we've come to, unfortunately. The opposite to that is talk about breaking down. Breaking down is catabolism. Any weightlifters here? Anybody that's into weightlifting big time? Okay, what's the worst thing you can do if you want to build muscle mass? Cardio, right? Cardio. Because cardio causes catabolism. So if you truly want to build muscle to be competitive, if you're into bodybuilding or whatever, you do that minor amount of of, uh, aerobics because you have to, but you don't do excess like me. You won't go in because I kind of split mine between 50% lifting and 50% biking or doing whatever, and that's not something you'd want to do if you really want to truly build mass, right? But the body does that all the time as well in terms of how it maintains. So, if I sit you on your ass or put you in a bed for six weeks, what happens to your muscles? They shrivel up. You go into a catabolic state. Why do people lose massive amounts of weight when they have cancer? Sorry? Right. Okay, actually what happens is cancer causes catabolism to go through the roof. Okay, because cancer cells have metabolism that's beyond anything the normal human body can do. So what's the body do to help maintain the cancer cells? It eats itself. So it actually starts breaking down its own protein to feed the cancer. That's why cancer patients massively lose their weight. And that's why they invented anabolic steroids to give them to cancer victims so they could try to maintain their muscle mass while they were fighting the disease. That's exactly where, that's actually where anabolic steroids actually came from. With the help. Uh, No, because the cancer needs the protein. So it's interesting. It's this sort of this this cycle. Because cancer is actually a parasite. It feeds off of you. It can't kind of survive on its own. So it's like, you know, those things on the tree. It's no different. But yeah, that's why they lose weight because the body actually starts munching on its own protein. And you end up in catabolic. So when we have muscle loss like that, catabolism, that's known as muscle atrophy. And you'll hear that term a lot within the course. If you're in an anabolic state building, that's called muscle hypertrophy. So guys and girls that are in the gym lifting weights to try to build muscle mass, they are actually causing muscle hypertrophy. Responsiveness. The other thing is detect and respond to changes. So this is something that's really important. It's called the stress and 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 the um, no no uh, adaptation. Stress and adaptation. So when let's use weightlifting again. We'll stay there for now. So why do you lift heavier and heavier weights? Why aren't you? What's the change come from? What are you doing to the muscle to make it bigger? You're stressing it out. You're asking it to do more work. So if you were to arm curl the same amount, yeah, you might tighten up a bit. But if you really challenge the muscle and make it, fatigue and die out, the body says, ooh, I need to be able to do that work, which means I need to put more muscle in there so that I can do the work better next time. Right? That's exactly what you're doing. And that's not just muscle building. That's also stress in life. Adaptation. So stress and adaptation is all those things. So when we talk about people being stressed out, and the reason why we are in such high stress issues in our culture is simply because we can't adapt at the speed that the stresses or stressors are affecting us in our culture. And this is when I was talking about phones and on all the time and rolling over in bed. It's almost like like tobacco addiction. Some of you guys, how many people here wake up in the middle of the night, roll over, turn on your phone before you do anything else? Or on your way to have a pee, you pick up the phone, you turn it on, right? Okay, that's called addiction. Okay, so what they're finding is that your generation is not sleeping well at night. You're up all the time. Everybody heard about the green light syndrome? So all these phones and 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 um, And uh, uh, sleep alarms and and the, the the clocks on your on your on your um, oven, and all those sorts of things are all green. Well, they have to scour blue, greens and blues, they tend to stimulate you and you don't sleep properly. So one of the theories is now, like put the thing over your TV. if you've got a TV in your bedroom with the clock, put a cover on when you go to sleep at night because it actually stimulates your brain to stay awake. Uh, movement. So obviously, uh, life processes have been able to move. And that's not just walking around. That's also organs moving around. It's also tiny structures and single cells moving around as well. So we need to be moving all the time. That's something we've discovered uh, fairly recently. I'm watching a uh, Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War right now. A lot of them died of pneumonia. Why? We used to believe that when someone was sick, we threw them in bed for six weeks. When you were pregnant... How long do you stay in bed for those days? Now, since you have the baby, they're like, <clears throat> get out and start moving, right? Because they realize if we lie around, it's unhealthy. Uh, growth, increase in body size by increase of size of cell or increase of number of cells. So, for example, we also find increase in amount of material between cells in bone. So we'll find that. Um, and we, we need to be growing, not necessarily tall. I mean, we reach a point at the end of puberty where we become taller. How often do you change your body? You ever, have you heard this? Every seven years, you get a brand new body. Except for what system? Your nervous system. So, you have to watch how much you smoke, drink, and smoke, and take, and whatever you do. Uh, because if you kill brain cells, they don't come back. Because we don't, we don't change those ones. <clears throat> and then we also have this ability to take unspecialized cells and make them specialized cells. So we've all heard about stem cells, they're big in the news right now, and that's where I think the future is going to go, I believe, in the coming years, if you've got a heart problem, they're going to go into your stem cells, and in the lab, they're going to build a new heart, and then you're going to go in, instead of having bypass surgery, they're going to throw out your old heart and put a new one in of your same cells, so you're not going to reject them. That's coming for sure. That's going to happen. Reproduction, obviously, reproduction is important. So, that could be uh, cells that are growing, repair or replacement, or the production of a new individual. So, our ability to maintain the species and and have offspring. Okay, that's that one. Any questions? Uh, Have you guys figured out yet I like to talk? So, that's why sometimes you have to stop me and ask me questions if you think you have one. No questions at all? Was that review for a lot of you? Yeah? All right, so now we have to go back in the past, okay? It's AD 5. We are in the Roman Empire, and we're gladiators, or we're Roman soldiers, and we're fighting. And we're on the battlefield using swords, and I slice you across the belly. What's going to happen? All this stuff's going to fall out. We don't know what it is, but we get curious about it. And Galen and Aristotle and all those boys there started to realize that, you know, underneath the skin, there was stuff that was going on in there. And we could see it at time to time in battle, these tubes and things. And so we started getting curious and we started asking about, you know, what was going on in the human body. And we came up with, uh, you know, different and weird philosophical, physiological things that we thought was going on. So we used to believe in something called humors. We believed that we were made of four humors. Anybody heard this? Over the four humors? Green or yellow, red, white, and black. Okay? So they thought that any kind of imbalance on those four humors would result in you sick, being sick or unbalanced. Traditional Chinese medicine still believes in balance of cold and hot and wet and dry. And they believe that any alterations in the balance between those, you might go to a practitioner, a traditional Chinese practitioner, he may say, you are wet and hot. Therefore, you need to eat this particular way to bring balance back to dry and cool so that all four work together. So, although it seems kind of way back there, we don't think that way anymore, traditional Chinese medicine still does believe in balance within that way. And there's some proof that would suggest that, you know, in some, some ways, it's kind of correct. Anyways, so once we started this curiosity, we had to start thinking about standardizing that curiosity and getting um, through standardization, getting commonalities. And I jump way ahead to uh, 1600s, 1700s. Uh, Vasilis wrote the very first book on anatomy, and um, this is the period of time where you know people were sneaking out in the nights and they were removing bodies from graves to dissect them and. The church, the Catholic church at the time, thought it was blasphemous and was burning people at the stake over it, because they said it was the work of the devil, and why would you cut open God's creation, and on and on and on. Anyways, it moved forward, and we, we got to the point where we started to somewhat dissect bodies more regularly. Anybody heard the term ghoul? Yeah? What's a ghoul? Never heard the term ghouls? Ghosts and ghouls? Like ghosts, Right? It's not exactly correct. The original term for ghoul was grave robbers. So in London, when grave robbing went absolutely nuts, they were called ghouls. So those are the guys that would pay money and go out and you'd bury your dad and that night they'd dig him up and ship him off to the local uh, medical hospital to have him dissected in front of 40 or 50 men to figure what was going on with the body. So we had to start standardizing. So. When the reason we had to standardize was it was the beginning of something called the scientific method. So we had to start thinking about proving things. And we had to be able to converse. So universities were starting to come all over Europe. And how could we ensure that if I'm in a German university and I'm talking to someone in an English university or a French university, how could we standardize that we all knew we were talking about the same thing? So the first thing we did was something called the anatomical position. So when I'm talking to you about where something is, or Tammy's talking to you about structures in the clinical anatomy course, everything always... Did you do this in clinical anatomy? Oh, so this is I don't have to spend time with this? You understand it? So remember that, you know, hands, palms, face forward, standing, the body is erect. So even if I'm hanging you upside down here from the ceiling, and I'm explaining where something is, that something is anterolateral to something else you always close your eyes and think of that person being back in the anatomical position when we're discussing it. Right? Does that all make sense to you guys? Okay, awesome. I don't spend any time there. That's perfect. Did she go into any of this? Any questions on this? So the key thing you need to take from this is that we will as teachers will all be using this all the time now. So no longer will we be talking about something uh, you know it's near something or above something or away from something. We'll actually be using this terminology when we talk. Yes? So <clears throat> cranial caudal is, is, represents superior and inferior relationships, generally speaking. But they can be, I don't know if she talked about how all this stuff mixes together. So two things I could say. I could say that the elbow lies proximal to the wrist. Would I be correct? How do we know it's proximal? What does proximal mean? It's closer to what? The midline. The midline, okay? Could we also say that the elbow is superior to the wrist? in the anatomical position? We could. Neither is incorrect. Neither is incorrect. Okay, so some of these terms get used back and forth. And the other thing is, there's old terms and new terms. Did she talk about cranial and caudal in relationship to superior and inferior? Okay, so cranial towards the up, towards the head, caudal down, and what does caudal stand for? Tail, right. All right, so they can be used back and forth. Traditionally, Proximal and distal is used in the limbs only. We tend to use proximal and distal in the limbs. We don't tend to use, we tend to use uh, superior. So something might be inferior lateral. Ooh, what does that mean? From what? Not necessarily. Well, here's a question. If you compare my second finger to my fifth finger, we could say what? The 1st finger is what compared to the 5th finger? You're doing it like this, right? Think of it, it has to be the anatomical position. My 3rd finger to my 5th finger, where does my 3rd f- finger lie in comparison to my 5th? Lateral. Lateral. lateral, close by lateral. So i have got your 3rd and your 5th. So in this position, my 5th finger is closer to my medial line, So, therefore, my focus was on that. So, I said my third finger lies what to my fifth? Because I could say, well, where does my fifth finger lie in relationship to my third? It has to do with your starting reference point. So, if I use my third finger, okay, be careful with that. If I use my third finger as my reference point, I could say that it's lateral. But if my first part of the statement says, what is my fifth finger in comparison to my third, where's my reference point now? It's my fifth finger. So, we can say, well, it lies Medial to my third. So it's all about reference point. So you always have to listen to the question. What's the reference first in the relationship? Okay? Does everybody make sense to everybody? Right? So always listen to the, read the question properly, figure out where the reference point is, and then you go from there. Did you talk about ventral and and dorsal? How do you remember dorsal? Use ventral and dorsal a lot too. In the hand, it's always ventral and dorsal. In the rest of the body, it's anterior, posterior. But how do you remember dorsal? You take that fish and you put him in the anatomical position so his white belly is facing you. And where's his dorsal fin? Make sense now? Dorsal fin. In the anatomical position. So the fish's head is up here, his tail's down there, white belly here, dorsal fin's back here. That's how you remember it. At least to me, that's how I always remembered it. Any other questions on this? you have an opportunity to ask? The nice thing is it's a language. And the more your teachers use it and the more you guys use it, it'll become second nature. Believe it or not, by the, by the end of about week seven, this is all going to be second nature to you. Right now you're like, oh, my God. But seven weeks from now when your teachers are using it and you're using it, it will just integrate into you like you won't believe and it'll be, it'll be fine. I mean, you won't even be worried about it. She didn't do any of this, did she? <coughs> So the other thing was, <clears throat> so we figured out the anatomical position. So if I am to have a conversation with you about the body. And then we had to talk about movement. So we're dynamic. These legs move from this cadaver here on the table. And the arms move. And what's relationship to what? Because everything's kind of connected. We came up with some terminology and relationship. The next thing was we looked at this body and we saw lumps and bumps. And we had to be able to talk about regions and areas because, you know, maybe the heart's in one region and the testicles are in another and the kneecap is in another and the foot and so forth. So we had to, before we even cut this body up, we had to standardize terminology of regions of the body. So we did. So you see here, uh, you know, we've got orbital for the eyes, buccal for the cheeks. No longer it is, the, is it the armpit, it's actually the axillary region. No longer is it the kneecap, it's the patellar, the patellar region. The front of the shin is known as the curl region, whereas the back, where the uh, gastrox and, 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 and the soleus is, is now called the sural region. You've got the gluteal region for the buttocks, sacral for the lower back. It uh, would also be new. The belly button is now the umbilical region. Around the umbilical region is the uh, abdominal, where they stick the needle in you for blood. That's known as the antecubital region. The upper arm is called the brachial whereas the forearm is called the antebrachial, okay? Uh, What I want you to know as well as, this is not the leg. This is the femoral region. Below the knee is said to be the leg. Here's a scoop. You need to know all these, okay? Because it's pretty likely these will be on the quiz next week. I don't know. Anticubital. ante cub Or brachial. sorry. This is... You can study off of that. Uh, that's just for now. That's the ones for now. I don't know if there's enough there or not. You guys, um, let me know if there's any. There's lots for everybody. So. Okay, so this is... Uh, this is some pure memorization work you're going to have to do. This sheet of paper is going to help you. These are the ones you need to know. One more? Okay. And you guys need one more? Welcome. Welcome. So it's likely this will be on the quiz next week as a diagram. I won't have you pick all of them by any means, but I might have you pick four or five of them. So you don't need to know them all anyways. Okay, so got the body on there. So before we cut them open, we've given names to the regions of the body. So maybe if we're on the phone, and nowadays to the point where I don't know, if you guys, if you guys know this, but you can actually do surgery over the phone. Have you heard this? So you may have up north in um, in the Northwest Territories, you might have a practical nurse who needs to do an emergency appendectomy um, to remove the the appendix of someone up there who's suffering. A physician will actually get on the phone and talk the nurse through. Now imagine if the terminology is wrong. Right? So he's the surgeon's going to say, you know, you're going to start, you're going to make a cut from the umbilicus inferior laterally towards the superior iliac spine, and on and on and on. So you see how important standardization of terminology is so that we can have a conversation. And what's going to happen to you guys in the very near future is your teacher is going to be using this terminology and your mind is going to picture where that is. Because right now you may not be able to, but over time that's going to start to build and it's going to come. So when a teacher says to you, this is there, your brain's going to go, yeah, I can see that. I know exactly where you're talking about. There's no confusion. And that's the one thing about terminology and standardization of terms and so forth is, when I'm talking to you about where structures are, there is no doubt. There's no confusion as to where or what I'm talking about because of all this standardization that's occurred. The next thing is, did you guys talk about this in her class? Okay, so what are these for? Why do we have these? What kind of movement? So did she talk about the movements, right? She talked about abduction, adduction, rotation, right, all those sorts of things. So they move in these planes, okay? The other way we use these, is it possibly to representation of structures such as in anatomical textbooks. So you may get transverse cuts to look down on limbs. So you'll look in your book and you'll see maybe a quad is cut in a transverse cut. And you're looking down at how those muscles beautifully all sort of relate to each other within the structure of what we would call the thigh. And that would be a transverse cut. We see sagittal cuts where the, maybe the body's cut down like this and you're... Seeing structures just of outside, looking at where the half the body or half the head's been removed to look at the structures in the head and so forth. MRIs, what do they use? How many people here have had an MRI? So, what do the pictures look like? Sorry? Yeah, can be coronal or can be transverse, depending on what they're looking at, right? So, think of it. Uh, what what um, MRI is doing is taking these mini little slices coronally or or sagittally. Or transversely, to look at layer upon layer upon layer as they work their way through. So um, you can use them there. Uh, cavities. So now time to cut this puppy open. So we got a human body on here. I use the saw. I cut the sternum. i got a knife down to the, to the groin. I open it up. And I take all this stuff and I throw it in the table. I've right? got stuff in here. Up here by the chest. Down here by the belly. And I take it all out and I'm left with cavities. These empty cavities. So we have to name those as well. There are two major cavities in the body. There is a dorsal body cavity and a ventral body cavity. The dorsal cavity is the smallest of the two. It contains the cranial cavity and the spinal cavity. So the dorsal contains the cranial and spinal cavities. The cranial cavity contains the brain. And the spinal cavity contains the spine. That's the easy one. It's the smaller of the two. The ventral cavities is two that divides into a whole bunch more so you have a thoracic cavity above the diaphragm and you have the abdominal pelvic cavity below the diaphragm so think of the, the diaphragm as being this demarcated border superior to the diaphragm is the thoracic cavity inferior to the diaphragm is the abdominal pelvic cavity so we look here in the diagram Orange represents the dorsal cavities of the cranial and vertebral. Purple, pink, and green represents the ventral cavities. And for now, purple is the thoracic cavity. Pink and green together is considered the abdominal pelvic cavity. And the abdominal pelvic cavity can be further subdivided, but we'll get to that in a second. So... The ventral cavities are are much more large than the dorsal. So, if we take the ventral cavity and divide it, the first thing we'll do is the superior component, which is the thoracic cavity. So, we said that the thoracic cavity is the cavity that lies superior to the diaphragm. It can be further divided into smaller structures. Two lateral pleural cavities, and what would they be for? Your lungs, one central pericardial cavity, what would that be for? Your heart, and something called the mediastinum that lies, really, if you were to remove the heart, that would be the whole part of it, but when the heart's in position, the superior mediastinum is the space superior to the heart and medial to both lungs, and we say within there are the great vessels. So the superior vena cava and the aorta, and the uh, um, the bronchial tubes and the esophagus. So think of two spaces here for the for the lungs, one space here for the heart, and then a space in between between the two that carries all these other structures. <coughs> oh, I wish I could get rid of this thing. Drive me crazy. So we see here two purples, two per- pleural cavities that. Teal color here, the pericardial cavity, and then this orange piece here is the superior mediastinum. And as I said, if we removed the heart, it is said that this whole space without the heart is said to be the mediastinum. Okay. Any questions so far? Um, So that's superior. Inferior to the diaphragm, we have the abdominal pelvic cavity, which is divided into two parts the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity now the difference between the two is when we look at the thoracic to abdominal pelvic we say we have a border the diaphragm when we look at the abdominal pelvic cavity there is no demarcation or border we generally tend to say that the pelvic cavity is below sort of the tops of the iliac crests here below so generally speaking the pelvic cavity Contains the uterus, fallopian tubes, and the sigmoid colon and the rectum in females. In males, it contains the prostate, the bladder. Well, females the bladder too. Prostate, the bladder, the rectum, and the sigmoid colon as well. Right. So we're we're down um, we're down in here. So we say the reproductive organs and the lower digestive organs tend to be in this green area. But there is no definite border like there is here with the diaphragm. Okay. So we say then that the abdominal cavity is where we find the stomach, intestine, spleen, liver, and so forth. Whereas the pelvic cavity cavity is the bladder. We say some reproductive organs because there are lower reproductive organs such as the vulva, labia, penis, that kind of stuff. Scrotum, they're not in the pelvic cavity. So and then and the rectum and the sigmoid colon, which I don't have on there. Have I lost you yet? Is this a review for most of you? Some yes, some no. Okay. All right. If you want to go to page two nineteen, if you happen to have your book with you, you're quite welcome to. If you figured out yet? I love to talk. So sometimes you have to shut me up. Ask questions. If you don't have your book, it's not a big deal. Um, this stuff. I have some pictures and stuff here, as far as that goes. So just page nineteen in your book. Is that the 14th edition? Oh, it's the 15th. Oh, you just made your own? Yeah. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So, within these cavities, we had a whole bunch of junk in there. So, we we can assume that in the thoracic cavity, we had two lungs and a heart and a bunch of vessels. And below the diaphragm, in the abdominal cavity, we can assume that in there, we said there was livers and spleen and... Stomach and intestines, and all that kind of stuff. And in the pelvic cavity, we had internal reproductive organs and the ending of the digestive system. All this stuff is jam packed into that space. How many people here dissected a, a pig or a frog in high school? How long was that, di- uh, was that small intestine that you pulled out of that damn thing? How long is the human small intestine? 22 feet. So imagine taking a 20-foot garden hose in your front lawn and jam that all into your gut. And you still have to have room for your spleen, your liver, because all this stuff's below the diaphragm. Your spleen, your liver, your stomach, right, and your large colon as well, right? Because your small intestine empties into your large intestine, which is where you eventually remove all those solid waste products when you defecate, right? So all that has to fit in here. The other thing to remember is all this stuff moves, Okay, you know that roar, roar, roar sound, right? What is that? What's it doing? Okay. <laughs> okay, it's actually moving. So, believe it or not, the large intestine goes back and forth and squeezes. Whips around like this. When that roar is happening, you're actually it's actually doing this. You don't know it because you haven't got the nerve endings there. You don't realize it. But it's actually, there's a lot of movement going on there at the time. And sometimes they are notice. They so you put your hand on your belly or maybe your partner's belly All said, Whoa, what the hell was that? Something kind of moved? It's because they're moving. They're doing their thing. So <clears throat> what would happen if we didn't have something to hold them to place and we didn't have something that was slippery and lubricant so that they could all slip and slide each, against each other? What, would, what do you think would happen? Okay, you might have some friction, so you would feel that as pain, And what would happen to all this stuff that's hanging here under gravity? It would all kind of go, right? Because we're still under the process of gravity. So the body has created a membrane that's related to all these structures that plays those kind of roles. So the walls of the ventral cavity and the outer surfaces of the visceral organs are covered by a thin double-layered membrane called the serous membrane or the serosa. Okay. So don't write for a minute. So... We're going to take a balloon, and you're going to be like, what the hell has a balloon got to do with this? So, just a simple, ordinary balloon. Okay. How many surfaces does this balloon have? Sorry? Y2. Okay. So, it has two surfaces. I'm going to do something a bit differently here. And please excuse my anatomy because I'm doing, or my drawing, because I'm just going to do this very quickly. But we have a hand here, okay, as a fist, and it is pushed into the balloon, all right? So now the balloon is going to look like this. How many surfaces does that balloon have now? How about this side? You guys don't talk very much. There's always quiet sides in the room. You better be careful because I'll start to zero in on you. How many sides has that balloon got now? It's okay if you're wrong, I promise. Just put it out there. Does it? So let's cut it in half. So let's let's, uh, do what anatomy books do. Let's put a square in it, and let's make it microscopic. So now it looks like this. Looking at it like that, how many sides are there? Say it. Correct. There's There's a surface here, a surface here, a surface here, and a surface there. Can you see it now? There are four surfaces, all right? So here's what happens with this serous membrane. Let's say that fist is a heart. The body actually has a balloon-like shape, and when the heart develops inside mum, it grows into the balloon, pushing into it. Now imagine, if you will, if I could make a balloon malleable enough and not, 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 not so full of air, imagine if I could push my hand into the balloon so that it completely covered my hand. Can you see how how it would have four surfaces? Right? So a surface that faces my hand, a surface that faces outside, and two inner surfaces that face each other. Can you see that? It's exactly how the organs and the heart develop inside mum. As the heart grows into the balloon, the balloon surrounds it, so therefore there's a four-sided membrane that coats the heart. One that's intimately involved with the outside surface of the organ, one that faces outside all of it, and then two inner surfaces that face each other. Okay, So, part of the membrane lining the cavity walls is called the parietal serosa, so there is an outer wall here, the very outer wall here is not related to the organ. Okay, Let's say this is an organ. This outer wall, we can say is not really related to the organ, because this inner wall is intimately attached to the organ. Can you see that? So this is the parietal layer, because it's away from the organ. The layer that is closest to the organ is called the visceral layer of the serosa. And in fact, in the body, the visceral layer actually attaches to the organs themselves. Does everybody understand that? So imagine all this junk in here, right? There's there's an outer layer, they all face each other, and there's a, another layer that, that sticks to all the organs. Sometimes it works better if we just talk about the heart first. So if I took my heart out and showed it to you, this is what you would see. So I'm just going to draw a real quick heart, okay? So the balloon has grown, everybody's grown up, so there's a layer that's Although there's spaces, please pretend there isn't. So that outer layer is intimately attached to the muscular layer of the heart. Do you understand it now? So you can see there's a layer that's intimately attached to the muscle wall of the heart, and there's another layer that's away from the heart. And please note that there is a space between the two, correct? Okay. The The layer that is closest to the organ is known as the visceral layer. That one kind of makes sense, right? Because organs are called viscera. What's it called when we take the organs out of a chicken? We eviscerate it. Here we're taking the viscera out. So the the layer that's closest to the organ is called the visceral layer. The layer that's farther away from the organ is known as the parietal layer. We can extrapolate that out a bit further. We've still got the the cadaver here and we have the, the, the cavity. The cavity itself is also lined with a layer of serosa, and because it's not related to any organs, it's called the parietal layer, and you all know what this is. How many people here cook baby back ribs? No cooks in the house? Nobody barbecues back ribs here? You smoke them, okay? Does anybody here remove the skin on them, at the ribs? That is known as the parietal serosa of the pleural cavity of the pig. So that layer that you peel away from the ribs is actually the parietal serosa of the area where the lung is. That's what you're taking away. You had a question? Does that makes so. If you've done ribs, you'll understand what I'm talking about. No. No, if you want to cook ribs properly, you always take that layer out because if you don't, the ribs all curl up because it tightens and pulls the ribs in. So, any good, any good barbecue pulls that layer off before they ever cook ribs. You just take a pair of pliers and it just rips right off when you have this nice thin skin. That is the parietal layer of the serosa of the pig. Questions? Because some of you seem a bit confused, and that's okay. Come on, please don't be afraid. No. It, is, it, it differentiates them so they can move in relationship to each other. As I said, there's a lot of movement going on here. Okay, Maybe I'll continue. Maybe it'll make more sense once I move a little bit further into the next slide. In a moment. So, it folds in on itself to form the visceral cirrhosis. So, we have the parietal away from the organ. We have the visceral that's attached to the organ. I said that there's a space between the two. And there is. <clears throat> in that space, we find fluid called cirrus fluid. And serous fluid is viscous. In other words, it's slippery, and this allows the organs to move around without friction. Whatever they're doing. Imagine your heart: boom, 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 all day, every day. This thing's jiggling and contracting. Imagine if it didn't have a nice, slippery environment to work in. You'd be like, oh, uh, oh, oh, uh, every time the heart heartburn. Oh, pericarditis. Absolutely. Okay, so. The thing is, though, this space, although your authors in your books, and I showed it here, is a very large space. It's actually said to be a potential space. In other words, if I were to cut it open and you were to look at it with the naked eye, you would say that there is no space. This space is so small, it is one cell wide. Okay. So imagine within this space, the cells line up like that, and that's only how wide that serous space is. In the lungs, this is vitally important, because the lungs also have a visceral pleura and a parietal pleura. So the cavity in which the lung lies, there's a lining of the lung itself and a lining of the cavity the lung sits in. This single-cell space results in a negative atmosphere. What does a negative atmosphere mean? Does anybody know? You call it a vacuum. Okay, a one, so it's a one atmosphere, negative atmosphere. So what that does, it allows the lung to suck to the outside or the inside of the rib cage out here, which expands the lung. If I put too much fluid in here and this widens, or blood or pus, what do you think happens to that atmosphere? It's no longer a vacuum and what's going to happen to the lung? You're going to have a collapsed lung. Because the lung, if you took everything away from the lung, it actually becomes this little ball of like spongy tissue. So this negative atmosphere is what expands the lungs. It is the expansion and the contraction of the rib cage that deliberately allows air into the lungs or not. It's called Boyle's Law. Breathing is actually passive. And we'll talk about that in Respiratory Phys. The point is that if I stuck a knife in your chest or I shot you in the chest, you have something called a sucking chest wound. And by allowing air to enter into that space, you lose the negative atmosphere and the lung collapses and you get shorter breath, and all those things that come with it, right? So what they do is they put a chest tube in you, right? They put a chest tube in you and it's, it's actually a vacuum that starts to create that negative space. and The lung expands with that vacuum until it gets out to the outside. Then they patch the hole and you're good to go. Okay? So, anyways, I'm digressing. You have to be careful with me because I digress a lot. You have to remind me. All right. So we see here in this diagram, let's look at the top first. So here's the, this is a transverse cut looking superiorly down. Okay, so we're up here looking down. Here are the two lungs. So this is the left, the left lung and the right lung because there's the spinal column. There's the heart. You will see the, uh, the, the artist has drawn light blue both to line the inside of the cavity and against the lung itself with a space in between. So we see here this lining here that lines the cavity is the parietal layer and the lining that lines the lung itself is the visceral layer and then we have the potential space in between so that the lungs that bit of fluid allows the lungs to expand and contract without pain if you have a bacterial infection you can get a condition called pleurisy and pleurisy inflames the membrane so much it stops producing fluid and every breath you take is like sandpaper same with what you were saying, pericarditis is the same thing. The heart is also surrounded by tissues. If you get an inflammatory condition of a bacterial infection, the, the fluid stops around the heart. These folks come into a emerge thinking they're having a heart attack. That's how painful it is. They have this central chest pain, and they end up in a merge. It's actually a bit of a medical emergency because if the inflammation stays around too long, the, the, those membranes will start overproducing fluid and you'll end up in a condition called cardiac tamponade, which actually squeezes the heart tight and it stops beating and you die. So they have, it is a bit of a state of emergency. So pericarditis, they'll tend to put you into the ICU and, and give you lots of antibiotics. So that's lung. We also see here all the organs. All these organs here, all this light gray area here is all serous membrane holding all these organs into place. So, this represents your intestinal tract and so forth. Any questions? Are you sure? So, we know we have serous membranes. Now, we can differentiate which one and we name it according to what organ or space it's involved with. Okay? So, the first one is the pericardium. So, we have a membrane that attaches intimately to the muscular wall of the heart and a membrane that lies outside of that so we have the visceral pericardium which lies on the heart itself and we have the visceral pericar- the parietal pericardium which lies outside that we have the visceral pleura which lines the lung and the parietal pleura that lines the cavity which the lungs lie in so cardium is for the heart pleura for the lungs where all the abdominal pelvic organs are, this is called something entirely different, called the peritoneum. All right? So we have the parietal peritoneum, which lines the cavity after I've removed all the guts, and all the organs that were in that abdominal pelvic cavity are known as the visceral peritoneum. Yes, and I'm going to talk about that next. Okay? Does everybody follow that? Please, if you don't, let me know you to, until you leave the room here, right? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense when Brian says that. I go home. I'm like, what? All right. So we have to expand it just a little bit further. There is specialty folds of peritoneum in the abdominal cavity. So there's further specialization of this serous membrane called peritoneal folds. Okay? They, are, um, they weave between the organs hold them together it also allows for blood vessels lymphatic vessels and nervous vessels to get access to the organs within the abdominal cavity so we're going to break those down there's three of them the first is known as the greater omentum so I'll give you a little bit of uh, where we are here by the way this individual was a smoker so we have a lung here and a lung here and here's the heart this is the diaphragm right here okay this is the liver This is the stomach. This is the greater omentum, this big yellow pad right here. Behind this would be the transverse colon descending and ascending of the large bowel. And in here would be the small intestines, which we don't see. So this whole yellow area is called the greater omentum. It is a peritoneal fold, okay? a serous membrane fold, and it is very fat. That's why it's yellow, folks. If this was a live person, I cut them open, it would look exactly like the chicken fat that you see on the chicken. So our fat looks very similar to chicken fat, that bit of yellowy, fluffy sort of look to it. Okay, so this is membranous. So this is <clears throat> peritoneal membrane, but impregnated in all of it is a lot of fat. So how many people here have an uncle, father, grandfather who's got the beer gut? It sounds like a ripe watermelon. Boom, boom, boom. And yet you squeeze it and there's no fat on the outside. It's just this skin, right? And it's big. All the fat that's behind that belly generally comes from this. So all that fatty collection doesn't go between the skin and the muscle. It's actually lining and filling all of this. Because of all the musculature and the bone in the belly, the only place this has to go... Is forward. So therefore, you get the tummy. Uh, Yeah, it's not quite as bad as the next one we're going to talk about. But yes, this does have some some relationship to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and liver disease. Yes. So you want them to get rid of it if you can. Okay? Like some of these guys can't even tie their shoes or put on socks, right? Yeah. So, omentum actually means apron. So it's said to be a fatty apron. So it kind of lays down... Over top, so it, it uh, drapes over the transverse colon and the small intestines like a big apron. So imagine your diaphragm here is This is a big fatty apron that lies almost down to the to the pelvis. Whoops, sorry. Okay. The next is called the lesser omentum. So here's this looks more like chicken fat, right? This is a much fresher cadaver. Okay, it hasn't been treated with uh, chemicals to preserve it. So you can see the color. Does it not look like chicken fat? Don't think it looks like chicken fat. Anyways, that's the greater momentum. This is the stomach. This is the lesser momentum. So, where the greater momentum covered this whole area below the stomach, the lesser momentum rises and helps the upper part of the stomach. So, it connects the stomach to the liver, which is here, and the duodenum, which is kind of here. Okay? So, it's a bit smaller, but it's a connector. Um, So we see here in the diagram, because sometimes um, the pictures of the cadaver people get a little bit lost in, this is the greater momentum here, like from the transverse colon all the way down, the front of the stomach, and the lesser momentum is here above the stomach, keeping the stomach kind of up here, a little bit higher where it needs to be. The last one is called the mesentery. It is the largest fold of the peritoneum. It is fan-shaped. It actually holds the small intestine to the posterior abdominal wall actually what keeps it in place. Um, it extends from the posterior abdominal wall. It drapes around the small intestine and comes all the way back again to where it started. And it is extremely vascular. So in the diagram here on the top, it's a green area. So the small intestine have been removed. So when you guys dissected the pig or the frog, remember you had to cut all that stuff away to get the intestines out? You were actually removing the small intestine from the mesentery. is exactly what you were doing. We see here in the diagram, this actually is the small intestine that's been removed from a live human being, probably during surgery. All this yellowish tissue here is the mesentery. And what I like about it is, this is one of the roles of the mesentery. It allows vascular and neurological access to and from everything that occurs within that small intestine. So, when you digest food and how does the food stuff get to the rest of the body, it actually enters into the body via the lymphatic system, not the blood system, back into the body, and then the live tissue is supplied by the blood tissue, and then the nervous tissue, of course, helps the small intestine muscles, muscles contract to move food through and so forth. And then, of course, here in the drawing, you can see how the mesentery kind of holds us all together. Any questions? Is that almost too much? Or is that enough? Just right? I think we can leave this for next week. I can't see why not. Is there any questions? So, next week there will be a quiz. My quizzes are always based on the content we took the week before. And again, I don't examine on anything I haven't talked about. So next week's quiz could and will be based on anything we've talked about between after break and now. Okay? Next week, obviously, we won't have the orientation part. It'll be a lot more lengthy. The quiz after that will contain anything we talked about in class. See you next week. Sorry, yeah. As soon as we walk in next week, we do the quiz. It's about 10 minutes, 12 minutes. We're done. We're into lecture. Okay? Thanks for coming out. Hopefully, I will see you all again next week. I didn't scare you. What schedule? Just send me an email. Okay. What was it about? Okay, just send it to me again. When did you send it to me? Oh, yeah, forget that. (coughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, okay. okay, just send me one now. I'm going have the office hours. but so I'm always available. No, just to send me an email. I can it was you on Wednesday. Uh... I will be putting them on my phone. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. I've been putting them mask